and then really surprisingly found that muscles that hadn't been working since my spine accident, I began to have this voluntary control of in the midst of this altered state. Oh my God. And so it really wasn't until like, I remember like we talked about it and remarked about it, but it wasn't really till the next day that all of a sudden these muscles that I'd spent many hours working on and PT trying to get them to work, people moving them for me and doing pool therapy and all these um, and, and electrostimulation and acupuncture and all these different modalities to try and get these muscles to fire where there just wasn't a brain to muscle connection. And then all of a sudden there is one and then it stays around the next day. My life used to feel like I was stuck on autopilot, trapped in the same thought loops, worries, and fears. Then something major happened. Enter psychedelics. My name is Kat Walsh, and you're listening to Trip On This. Join me as we journey together into these mysterious realms, discussing everything from personal transformation, otherworldly experiences, and practical at-home tips. Welcome, fellow traveler, to the land of limitless possibilities. Welcome back, my friends. It's your host, Kat. And today's episode is with a man named Jim Harris. Jim has one of those stories about hope and healing and healing against all odds. He was a National Geographic photographer. He had a snow kiting accident that left him paralyzed from the abdomen down. He was on for eight months. He was re rehabilitating. Thankfully, he wasn't fully, fully paralyzed, but it was a long road ahead. And he talks about that journey. But the most unlikely ally in this story is when he took psilocybin mushrooms and suddenly muscles that had never been firing ever before in his eight months of physical therapy suddenly began to fire. The mind-body connection started to communicate. And so he talks about this journey and it's fascinating. You know, anytime I hear these kind of life-changing stories and also stories of hope. I just get so excited and I'm so pleased that I get to share this with you all. My one little note that I want to say to everyone listening is please be patient with this episode. We were having horrendous Wi-Fi issues that day. And so uh, trying to like cut around all of the wobbly sounds. Uh, yeah, it's not like the most beautiful of the listening experiences, but if you can hang in there, the content, the story, you know, all the goods are there. And so I just want to let you all know, I only have one, uh, one more episode that's just kind of like kind of wobbly like this because my Wi-Fi started to get all unstable. Um, but now going forward, I have a new program that all records locally. So y'all are going to hear beautiful, pristine sound going forward. But I'm so sorry to Jim. <laughs> of course, it's like the epic story and it's like a little wobbly, but uh, bear with us. It's worth it if you could stick around for this amazing story of hope. And with that, I pass it over to Jim Harris. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot wait to hear your story from your words because it sounds like you have lived quite a remarkable life. You've had uh, quite a healing journey in front of you, and I'm really looking forward to just getting to know you and hearing your story. So welcome. Welcome to Trip on This. Thank you, Kat. Good to be here. Awesome. So, all right, why don't we just start first with being a National Geographic photographer? Because like, how does one become a National Geographic photographer? What was the journey first, even to get to that place? Because that already is uh, dope. <laughs> so I'd love to hear like, what, how did that happen? Mm, I first got invited on a National Geographic trip uh, following Wolverine researchers across frozen landscape in Northern Mongolia, which I think they maybe had asked a few other of their kind of regular, regular go-to expeditionary photographers to go on this trip. And I think a few people have been like, that sounds miserable. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and it sounds, it sounds like the ratio of, of like uh, cold and discomfort to like interesting and, <laughs> and compelling. It was maybe the ratio is a little off for people. So if, I, my impression was they went down a list and uh, after they ran out of, you know, went through the first four or five names, someone was like, we should call this guy Jim. Um, <laughs> and so I, I rearranged my schedule to go do that and then worked on a couple other projects um, subsequently. So but, you know, the, the the arc up to that point mm -hmm. was that I have a biology degree from college. Mm -hmm. um, but then instead of going straight into grad school, which was my, it was plan A, 
I decided to go be a ski bum and a mountain guide for a few winters Mm -hmm. and doing that for one or two winters led to a few more. And that in turn led to doing photo and video work. I started doing kind of like expedition and wilderness and high altitude photo and video projects. It really was because I had a more because of of some of the mountain guide training than because of any photographic aptitude. I was going to say, was uh, it, was it learned? Like, did you learn your skill set just from kind of playing around? Did you take any classes or watch YouTube videos? Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I had like an old film camera that my dad uh, had brought back from a military tour in Southeast Asia, um, brought back from um, South Korea or something or Japan okay. during a Navy tour um, during Vietnam War. And um, so I messed around with this old like vintage camera as a kid, this like old 70s uh, Nikon camera. I was interested in photography since from my from my childhood. Okay. And at some point, um, at some point bought like a, one of the first or one of the earlier digital cameras that had like full manual controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was sort of my inroad to that. Okay. So you, you started shooting up when you were in, uh, the mountain town and how did that then actually become a profession? <laughs> like what is the jump? Because I feel like there's a mm-hmm. lot of, there's a lot of people that want to be photographers. There's a lot of people that are very talented sure. photographers. And it's, it's a very, com- right. It's very, it's very competitive. It's yeah, a yeah, thing yeah. To make a, make a, make a living at or to stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on a trip in 2009 with some friends. I went on a backpacking trip. Um, took a bunch of photos, like published them on a kind of a blog format, a trip report mm-hmm. um, from this long backpacking trip. And uh, it, like it went viral. And, you know, 15 years ago, that was like like a, the earlier days of things going viral on the internet where totally. there was like uh, people posted the link on Reddit and it made it to the front page of Reddit oh, a couple wow. of times. And Reddit was a lot smaller than it is now, yeah. but still like crashed the website because it'd yeah. be like a million million visitors. Um, and so it was really through that, that kind of this idea of uh, doing something like putting something out in the world for free without an expectation of a return. Right. And then because of that, someone being like, Oh, I saw this interesting thing you did. Do you want to come on the ski trip with us? And being like going on the ski trip and then writing a magazine article about it um, and, and getting published and then um, started working getting hired by different outdoor brands to do like Mm -hmm. catalog shoots and things like that. The paid a lot better than the editorial work. Sure. Um, Yeah. And so it was kind of, that was sort of the, but that also, you know, continued to kind of build and grow for me. Like one opportunity leads to the next one door opening leads Mm -hmm. right to the hallway of the next doors. Um, But through that kind of had this escalation of more ambitious wilderness trips. Um, Mm -hmm and ski expeditions until uh, two friends and I had written a grant proposal to go ski the length of an ice cap that's down in the southern, the southern tip of South America, down in Patagonia. Oh, my um, God. We, like, received this grant money to go do this trip and traveled all the way there. And then at the very close to the outset of this trip, just right near the beginning, um, I had an accident using a something called a snow kite. It's, like, similar to kite surfing, but for snow or was picked up and slammed down by a wind gust and broke nine vertebrae and was paralyzed. Uh, and so that really, that really shifted the trajectory of my life from like uh, quite, quite physically capable and athletic and outdoorsy to, to being a paraplegic. So how long, um, I want to get so far into that story. I have a couple quick questions even before we get into that, because it's such mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. it's such a remarkable part of your story. And I don't want to like breeze through that. Um, mm-hmm. how long were you doing this, uh, type of wilderness photography work? Uh, was your specialty by the way, like skiing, uh, w- like what was your, what were you going out and, and ultimately like shooting? Um, how long were some of these trips, you know, like, and, and also like, even from a basic survival place, um, did you ever encounter dangers, uh, you know, whether it's wilderness or climate or, uh, waterfalls, I don't know, before, before we get into, of course, this pivotal moment that really changed everything. Yeah, I was, so I started doing like outdoor education and guiding work around 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by 2010 was doing, um, photo and video work full-time and then I was paralyzed at the end of 
2014. 2014. So I had like four years of doing, yeah, of doing like video stuff full time. Gosh, I think I've maybe done about a dozen or maybe a, somewhere in the mid teens, um, number of trips that are four weeks or longer. Wow. So like the long, the long trips I've done are about a month or five weeks. Oh my, um, like out there in the wilderness, like you're out there or is there like stopovers, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you even have that much food to carry? Uh, mostly not stop, <laughs> mostly not stopovers, mostly organizing resupplies of some sort. Like it gets logistically really difficult to carry, say, more than like two weeks worth of food just ends up being really, really heavy. So ideally, right. if you can order, organize a resupply somewhere around like seven or 10 days, that's going to be a little more, a little less backbreaking. Oh my uh, there's God. certainly people do much longer, totally self-supported trips, but it often involves something like kayaks where you can have, you know, a couple hundred pounds of gear in a kayak or, um, or like towing a sled to the North pole or the South pole where you can have you know, wow. an enormous athletic achievement, but there's, there's ends up being kind of a, almost like a, it takes more and more strategy and a stronger body to carry you know, more than two weeks of food is pretty hard to hoist. Like oh. you have to be packing really light, really, clor- really like both light and calorically dense food. Yeah. Oh ideally. my God. It's just, Maybe it's not going to be very tasty at some point. Yeah. It's just so wild to me because I just think of like, I'm s- like how much I like comfort and just thinking about what it would be like to actually be in the wilderness for a month with just weather and animals and bugs and just the f- ground mm-hmm. <laughs> and just thinking like, well, there mean, are different of those- types of people. Oh, <laughs> well, it's just like another situation where we, uh, we're so adaptable humans as, totally. as an animal, as a species, like we just kind of like, like a goldfish growing to the size of its bowl. I feel like it's really like, there's similar things for adversity and comfort. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's start traveling to developing countries and realizing how many people are living like three or four generations in a single, in a single room. Totally. Totally. Uh, I mean, it really, yeah. Like there is no, there's no privacy and not much comfort. Yeah. And you wonder, how people have the um, privacy to be intimate, to be making that next I generation. Know. You're like, gosh, know, like, like your your mother-in-law is right there. And your kids <laughs> yeah. are like right there. Like, she ah. like times it. She goes to the, <laughs> she has to go out to the market for like 30 minutes. She's like, okay, this is our moment. Exactly. <laughs> <This is it. laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. People taking advantage of. Totally. Uh, but at any rate, I feel like we kind of are the goldfish that grow to the sides of our size and shape of our feather bed or our multi-generational bedroom yeah no no i i love that how how did what did being out in nature like that uh teach you did it did it deepen the way that you look at the world uh or maybe said another way did it teach you about life like actually Mm -hmm. whether it's being adaptable or what were some of those things you could take away from being on these long trips and actually applying it uh i guess to you know quote normal Mm -hmm. normal life when you Mm -hmm. come back into it um, I think two ideas that I feel have been, you know, really ingrained in me really, that I've learned um, in a way maybe more profound than a lot of people are kind of like almost two sides of the same coin and that they're like kind of opposites, but also they pair really well. Um, and one of those is like this idea of kind of our own personal agency, like mm-hmm. in outdoors is such, there's such immediate feedback to your good decisions or your bad ones that it, it's a really empowering experience. And I think a lot of people have that. Like the first first time you go camping, the first time you're in nature and you realize that you can do it and you can be comfortable, but you realize, you know, how much is how much of your comfort is is sort of just a direct outcome of the choices you make. Like yeah. if you don't pack a raincoat and it rains, mm-hmm. you're gonna be sad. Right, right. Um, but the flip side of that, you know, is that you have all this agency to to make choices around maybe you can't control the rain, but you can um control how you prepare how what right. what decisions what you do when it does rain um and i think that's really applicable to to life in our culture where we're so insulated often from the long-term implications of some of our decisions mm-hmm. um like whether you choose to get a vaccine shot or not right, seems right, to right. be a it, it is you know uh, um like what implications there may be or may not be and there yeah. probably won't be for months if there is one at all. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even if you get sick or don't get sick, like it's not clear that happened because or because right. you know, right? like all these all these repercussions are kind of diffuse in gray area and it's hard to make sense of. 
and outdoors tends to be less that way. It tends to be pretty straightforward. Right. And like there's, I feel like there's a lot of things you can learn from that. But then the sort of the, the flip side of that coin for me is seeing oneself as being part of a bigger ecosystem yep. of being a little bit like quite subject to this weather, even whether or not a packed a raincoat yeah. um, and seeing the way ecosystems interact and then kind of having the realization that oh, like as humans, we are good at creating our own environments, our own climate controlled situations, but we're still kind of inextricably linked to um, this larger environment, this larger mm-hmm. biosphere. Did you feel that you were able to really uh, get out of your head in a lot of ways when you were out in nature in the, I don't want to necessarily call it stillness because there's a lot happening, but there is a stillness uh, that's different than I think maybe the world that that's so stimulated with phones and cars and whatnot. Um, does the monkey mind act up in that kind of environment or do you slow down and get more into a, a present rhythm with honestly an atmosphere, a, a, an environment that is fully in its presence? fully in the present moment. Do you, mm-hmm. you know, do you, do you, are you on that biorhythm or are you kind of like thinking about fucking life? Like we all do, you know? Yeah. It's both of those. We're so good at remembering the past and using that to extrapolate the future. Mm-hmm. And so we have like this, you know, this hindsight, this ability to remember what happened to us and this ability to use that to project the future. And that, um, if you're kind of constantly using that sort of cognitive tool of project, of projecting into the future, if you're constantly in that, then it tends to be a very anxious headspace. You're constantly anticipating, constantly trying to like head off potential bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this kind of space of presence in between those that, you know, we can cultivate through meditative practice or through, Mm -hmm. um, gosh, through lots of different ways. But there's this Western psychology idea of flow state that's that's quite similar to some of the um, Eastern meditative presence practices where you have this really immersive experience and you kind of sense of self falls away and we lose track of time Mm -hmm. and we tend to perform really well. Um, like better, we, we do whatever activity we're doing. We've been doing it at a higher caliber, a higher precision and, uh, kind of with less frontal lobe Mm -hmm. overthinking it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of the, the criteria for flow state are required. You have like a, you have to have some sort of pre-existing skill set with, whatever that thing is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like it's probably not going to happen the first time you try and play basketball or play chess or go for a trail run or um, like it really can be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but some things are going to take more effort to train your attention. Okay. Like yeah. seated meditation just takes a fair amount of willpower and dedication yeah. and like mind wandering and then bringing it back and yeah. like that um that process again and again it takes some like tenacity and some sort of like internal kind of steering it right yep uh, versus things that are where there's higher perceived risk or higher consequence there's a lot more emphasis to like i need to just be, be focused on this and not be thinking about grocery lists and not be thinking yeah. about emails yeah so okay so i got you so by the nature of that survival aspect that it's actually part of your part of your survival is actually being present in the moment brings you back to that moment nature in general so big and grand that even just that stimulus like i feel like is uh the grandeur of nature is really good at driving our attention yeah i mean if you can that sense of awe is a really is a hard one to ignore when you're in a beautiful place i mean we look at it's interesting to look at the ways that we've tried to engineer that for ourselves, like mm-hmm. being going inside a cathedral um, or, a, you know, a big performance space yes. where architects and engineers and, and people have given a lot of attention to trying to cultivate a place that where you feel very small, where you feel this sense of um, beauty and complexity, just stepping into mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. nature kind of does that yeah. a little more effortlessly. It does. So now let's uh, let's segue now to you. You teased the moment, but you go on this trip now to Patagonia with your friends, and you have this. Did you call it a, a ski kite? A ski kite was that it? Yeah, a snow kite. Snow kite. Yeah. Snow kite. Yeah. A snow kite accident. Um, was it a tumbling fall? Was like 
did you know what happened? Can you can you take us back to that moment and uh, where were you from a headspace, from a body space? How did you get out of there? Mm. <laughs> like, um, was there a rescue? There was a rescue. Uh, we had a few, um, a number of like preparation days, figuring out our resupplies, figuring out some trip logistics and some permitting issues. And then um, I was practicing with this new snow kite. We had some, in the snow kite world, we had pretty small kites, like four meter kites. Um, was just practicing with this fairly small kite. Uh, I got lifted off the ground by a wooden gust, which isn't, which isn't that unusual for those snow kites. It's not, it's not meant, it's not like a paraglider or a base jumping wing or something that someone would like jump off a cliff or out of a plane. Or right, it's not right, really right. meant for flying. Right. Okay. Um, but like it's a meant little all air. to be used more, more like a sail for a sailboat. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but I got, but also it's not unusual to be picked up off the ground either, mm-hmm. but that was it would be really small kites. So they weren't, that wasn't what we wanted to use them for at all. People do get these larger kites with more surface area that generate more power and more mm-hmm. lift and do like tricks in the air and then land again. Oh, wow. Um, but I got picked up by this wind gust. I don't remember the impact. Um, I don't know exactly how I landed or what even went wrong. Um, but I wasn't anticipating that things were going totally off the rails in sure. the moments before that I remember. And then I, then I remember regaining consciousness um, and realizing that I was concussed, like f- realizing that I was like kind of disoriented and confused mm-hmm. and, but having enough clarity to realize what that was. Right. Um, and then was pretty alarmed to realize that I couldn't feel or move anything from chest down mm. and that I was paralyzed. Oh my God. Um, so I feel like there it was like a, there wasn't, there wasn't much m- mystery uh, about what, was going on it was like oh wow. I'm, i don't, don't have any idea or wasn't contemplating the long-term outcomes okay right at that moment okay okay but it was like oh this thing has happened it wasn't like yeah oh my god that must have been so mm-hmm. terrifying did you feel were you in a state of fear or was it first like a state of like uh panic uh, I've got to get help now. I'm like, obviously you were talking about it. Was, you didn't get to the long-term place, which is probably better at that point is to like stay again, like we're talking about in the moment and, and mm-hmm. be like, okay, what's first? I need to get the fuck mm-hmm. off this mountain right now right. and get yeah. into a hospital. What, so your friends were, thank God there. Um, did did mm-hmm. a hospital come and get you? where you're not in the United States. So did you go to a hospital where you were? Yeah. yeah, I got evacuated. I got backboarded to a hospital in a small city in um, Southern Chile called Punta Arenas. Mm-hmm. Um, and Punta Arenas was, it was a small enough kind of little regional hospital, but also really remote. Like there's no roads from that city to other parts of the country. The only mm-hmm. way to come or go is by boat or by air. And it took about a about a week to organize a flight to get a med jet flight to leave the country. Um, as far as the kind of the headspace, I've I remember being like fairly lucid and fairly uh, action oriented. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the kind of the real life emergencies I've been a part of the emotional gravitas doesn't really hit me till later. Yeah, like in the moment, I feel like very rational, logical, and pretty, pretty action oriented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, um, Like, let's take care of this thing. Let's do a, let's do B, let's organize the thing Mm -hmm. and like quite decisive. And then it's once the, once the emergencies deescalate a little bit, like once the crisis is, is not so acute or there's somebody else to take the reins, like a doctor, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, that was what just happened. Yeah. I, I really would like to go, go there too, but just a couple more logistical questions is, so you, you're, mm-hmm. you're in this hospital now, not f- knowing, I guess, right. Of like really what, what just happened or the severity, it sounds like of what happened. Um, and then you get flown back to the U S is this where you began to hear what, what was your, what was your actual injury? What were they telling you? What were the doctors mm-hmm. saying to you at this point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I broke nine vertebrae and uh, was paralyzed at T7 vertebrae, which is about midway down the back. For me, that was um, kind of right at the bottom of my rib cage. 
Um, wow. So all of like abdominals down were paralyzed. Nothing. You felt nothing. Yeah. I couldn't feel or move anything. Oh my. For, uh, I started to regain some um, movement within a few weeks after the accident, like first wiggle a toe and then um, began to like flex a quad muscle, like enough to lift my heel and inch up off the bed. Um, and then kind of have this gradual progress over the following couple of years of nerves slowly healing and regaining more functional mobility, like ability to like move limbs against the force of gravity. Mm -hmm. Was that, so an accident like this, uh, being paralyzed like that, um, was it unusual or was that, did they think that you were going to be recovering? Did they think there was still a good chance that you would be moving a toe and then a leg? Like, mm -hmm. was this a miracle recovery? You know, like what on the scale of mm -hmm. uh, your understanding of like what this level of yeah. injury was, are you much further than you're, than you were ever probably thought to be? Nerve injuries tend to have a pretty broad range of possible outcomes, but there's a lot of pressure in the allopathic medicine world to give people usually like a worst case outcome. Mm. Um, and I think that's, you maybe have to ask a doctor or a surgeon what sort of pressures they feel. But my sense is that part of that is probably legal that if you tell somebody that it might all be okay, and then it's not okay that they're going to sue or their family is going to sue. I, see. Um, I think another aspect of that is most patients are, really uncomfortable with uncertainty want to would rather hear really decisive bad news than to hear like we we just don't know like it might be okay it might be terrible we just don't know and there's mm -hmm. not any answers and that there's so there's some pressure on doctors to be to be decisive and be definitive about what someone's outcome will look like and so in the spinal cord injury world in the past that's looked like most patients being told they're not going to walk again Right. Um, but I would, I would like lean back against the people, anyone who wants to call my recovery a miracle. Like there is an aspect of it that is like some grace of God or like a small random chance um, element, like things that aren't from my participation, aren't from something that a surgeon or a physical therapist has done. Mm -hmm. And it's just some sort of luck of the draw, whether you want to see that as through a spiritual lens or a different one. Mm -hmm. Um, what lens do you see it through? But, but I mean, I think there's a lot of, it's useful to see it through some different ones, right? Yeah. Um, and to like be able to shift between some different lenses. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think there's other parts of my recovery that are repeatable. And I think in, in one of the ways you can see that um, in the kind of spinal cord injury medical world, that it's becoming less and less common that people are told they're not going to walk again because um, it really isn't that definitive. Okay. Um, right. But yeah, like my, my recovery is in a pr fairly small minority. Okay. Um, but also having said that, like there's a, I'm, I'm a, what they call walking paraplegic. I still have um, sensory and motor deficits mm -hmm. from my T7 vertebrae down. Mm -hmm. And also I'm like, I walk with a, I walk with a pretty evident limp. The thing that I wanted to mention, I'm, I'm glad that doctors are not being so definitive anymore because I feel like, you know, and, and again, like there's the Joe Dispenza of the world that would really talk about the, you know, how the power of the mind. Right. And, and if you don't believe you're going to heal, then the likelihood of you healing feels like it, it goes down. And, you know, for myself, I, I, I had a hip replacement, so nothing nearly as, as severe as, as what you experienced, but um, I had a hip replacement. I had a knee surgery. They, and my doctor, my old doctor, he had told me, it's just a matter of time until you get a knee replacement and probably the next knee and then you're probably the next hip because it was an autoimmune thing. And um, and I, at the time, I, I just, I thought, oh, okay, so it's just a matter of time. And that was like the story that I was told is is mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. uh, and, and through that, it just progressively got worse and worse. Um, I had a medicine that like helped with the, like slow it down, but um, it just really was just this, this, um, I didn't even know how much I feel like that little idea took hold in my own mind. 
Um, until then, uh, my psychedelic journey, and, and I think I'll tell this story and then kind of shift into your journey with magic mushrooms, because um, it wasn't until I started uh, consuming magic mushrooms quite regularly, my mindset around myself had started to shift a lot uh, in terms of like what I can do and what I can achieve. And the box of what I thought was possible began to uh, break down. And that then carried to my physical body. I remember like it, it just all of a sudden, I, I, it just came to me. I was like, huh, does it, is it a matter of time? Like, and I began to actually think like, maybe, maybe I've been thinking about my own body wrong the whole time. I've been thinking um, it's only a matter of time that I get worse. And so I was. And so I began to have this complete shift in, oh, I'm healing and it might take longer but every day I'm healing, I'm going to keep doing little things and I'm not going to be afraid to do certain things because there was so much fear and hurting myself more that I would perpetuate or like the idea that I'm getting hurt. Um, and today I'm doing things that I thought would be impossible at the time. Impossible. And it, it's definitely been a journey like this. You know, I think the physical body uh, goes through its time, but I'm able to do things in yoga that I thought I could, I could never have done. And I, the only thing I can really attribute it to is it's been in this direct correlation to this shift in my own mental aspect around, um, what isn't, isn't possible physically uh, from the life that I want to build myself and all of these things. And so, um, I think that mindset piece is so important and I, you know, I get it on one hand, that definitive answer. And yet, if we can hold out from having the definitive and can hold on to maybe more ambiguity and maybe more hope, mm -hmm, it seems mm -hmm. like it's actually the benefit if we can, if we can find grace in that gray area. And it sounds like that was for you. Did you always believe that you would be able to walk? Did you hold that faith for yourself? Yeah, like really... When I was in that hospital in Punta Arenas, um, I posted to social media letting people know that I had this accident. And in the absence of a prognosis um, there, I had written something about like what a beautiful process it was going to be to learn to walk again, or what a difficult and beautiful process or something along along those phrasing. Um, so yeah, sort of in the absence of this, of this prognosis, I kind of, similar to what you're speaking to, like made up made up my mind so i sort of had a sense of um conviction around hope that i'm not sure i would have had if someone would have given me a more definitive prognosis earlier on now i think that that power of visualization is so is so powerful and i think it helps to see that process through maybe i think i have i have some real reservations and hesitations about joe dispenza and his work mm -hmm. uh, in part because some of the way he markets himself from his own spine injury which if you he's often a little bit circumspect maybe even invasive about what happened to him he was hit by a car he describes he broke his back um he often seems to sell it that he healed himself from paraplegia uh when what he's also written about in the instances where he has described that accident that he was in, um, he had a skeletal issue. Issue. He, he broke bones. He broke vertebrae. His uh, spinal cord was, you know, miraculously not injured. Um, he elected not to have a spinal fusion mm -hmm. and instead to let those bones knit together. And I imagine, from an orthopedic or a neurosurgeon perspective, that's a really risky decision because mm -hmm. if he had a subsequent fall, then he has this unstable break where those nerves could be damaged irreversibly mm -hmm. um you know almost like a, a more extreme version of breaking your arm but not having a cast right, and maybe right. if it's a non-displaced um break like it can heal just fine but mm -hmm. like you better not fall down the stairs and then at right, the time right, right. that it's healing or things are going to be catastrophic and so i think it was a similar situation for him and i do think a lot of his he helps a lot of people including a lot of people with spinal cord injuries mm -hmm. and also i think there's some limitations to his particular presentation of that mm. and things that feel like they almost border on a something um dishonest oh i see Okay, the way that's interesting. That he represents it. Sure, 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 sure. No, that's um, that's very fair, and I know you would you would 
probably know that subject very deeply. So uh, I'll, I'll check that I'm, out for sure. I'm curious about it because, yeah, well, well so yeah. many does. I do think that a lot of uh, the ideas that he speaks about um, do have a lot of power. Sure. Certainly the idea of visualization is, you know, known known to help regrow nerves. And there's yeah. lots of different traditions, lots of different sports science, lots of different neuroscience that all point to that being the case. Which is amazing. Um, that's, I don't think he that's has amazing. A monopoly on that idea. Either. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, my last question before we get into the magic mushrooms is: is did you, did you ever, when you realized, we were talking about from from a mental health aspect, uh, the, the fear part, but when you, when you realized that you probably wouldn't be able to do the things that you were doing before, you know, to do mm -hmm. these long expeditions and things. Did you ever find yourself falling into despair? You know, like, did you, was there, um, mm -hmm. was there that moment where it was like a very, like a, like a, did you, did you hit the bottom at one point? Um, or were you mm -hmm. always able to s stay light and just feel grateful that you were you mm. know, alive? Like what, what, what happened there? Gosh, uh, I was not, I think I, I definitely have had some low points in clinical depression and, um, mental health struggles and in, in kind of the grieving and the fallout and the self-reinvention. Yeah. Um, and I think that's like really common, like nearly ubiquitous with people who have a, a life changing injury. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a lot to reorient from. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that worked to my advantage is I felt like I was for maybe a variety of reasons was kind of able to kick that can of depression down the road for a while. Okay. Like I witnessed, a lot of other my peers in the hospital, other patients who had been recently injured, people were pulled into into pretty deep depression quite quickly. And I think I had some some tools and some privileges that allowed me to kind of avoid that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it caught up with me eventually. But maybe because I was able to steer away from it for a bit. I think it probably helped to enable my recovery yeah. more than if I had been like hopeless and despairing um, a few months out. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to hear. So why don't we uh, shift now to the article that brought you to me? Uh, I hear you took magic mushrooms at a festival and some pretty cool physical things happened. Can you talk to us about what, where were you? What happened? <sighs> What? Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Take us back to the day where you took magic mushrooms and stuff happened with your physical body that maybe had not happened <laughs> okay. previous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I relationship to psychedelics prior to this concert that you're referencing um, had always been pretty celebratory, recreational, like go camping with friends, maybe like once a year, eat mushrooms, mm -hmm. be silly and look at you know, trees and weird rocks and um, hug them and be silly and, and communal, but it wasn't necessarily like a, it wasn't like a spiritual growth or personal sure. introspection or a healing journey. So that was kind of the framework I was coming from. And then at this concert had been uh, really something like pretty close to sober for um, like eight months, nine months at that mm -hmm. point uh, following my accident. Um, and at this musical music festival, I felt like a bit of an outsider where everyone else, well, there's a lot of partying happening. There was a lot yeah. of cannabis um, around. There's a lot of drinking. Uh, there's a lot of like revelry. And I was um, like walking with a walker, had just was making an effort to not use a wheelchair, um, which turned the event into like this enormous, like physical undertaking for mm -hmm. me that I think it was like, not that for most people. Uh, but just the idea of, you know, walking out to a field into a, to see this concert and then standing there and then maybe walking to a different stage that's in the adjacent field was mm -hmm. like a, a huge, a huge physical undertaking. Yeah. Um, and I've learned pretty quickly that things like even like a really small amount of alcohol would make this kind of, like barely working nerve connection to my legs that I had would just make it shut down oh, and I would really? just collapse okay. and not be able to stand again. So it was, it was a really big disincentive <laughs> yeah. to not drink. Yeah. Um, and can cannabis felt kind of similar, which is like, I like my legs just feel like they weigh a thousand pounds and mm -hmm. this makes mobility so difficult. On one hand, it felt really good to be in that concert setting 
um, there in a social setting after having like two thirds of a year in this kind of hospital, very medical, very mm-hmm. like not fun, not celebratory setting. And then to be around a bunch of people partying and listening to music was great. And at the same time, I still felt like an outsider in part because I felt really self-conscious of my disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in part because everyone else is like engaging in different substance use mm-hmm. to kind of enhance the experience. And I felt I'm like an outsider to that. Mm-hmm. I, um, but sort of on like a hunch was like, well, maybe small magic mushroom dose won't be that. Somebody offered me a mushroom chocolate, ate half of it. So I had, I'm not sure how much psilocybin, but like mm-hmm. a fairly small amount, like yeah. something like yeah. a gram or a gram and a half, okay. uh, enough to be altered, but not like. Not tripping your face off. Yeah. Yeah. Not tripping face off enough <laughs> yeah. to be like, I see some weird patterns in the grass, Okay, but also I'm still quite oriented to consensus reality. Yeah. Like have not, there's no ego death, as mm-hmm. they say, no mm-hmm. loss of, of self, like just quite like still know who I am and where I am. And yeah. Yeah. What I'm doing. Yeah. Um, still pretty oriented to the scene around me. Mm-hmm. And also things like extra pretty and sparkly yeah. and a little bit wavy. Um, and then really surprisingly found that muscles that hadn't been working since my spine accident, I began to have this this um voluntary control of in the midst of this altered state. Oh my God. And so it really wasn't until like I remember like we talked about it and remarked about it, but it wasn't really till the next day that all of a sudden these muscles that I'd spent many hours working on and PT trying to get them to work, people moving them for me and doing pool therapy and all these um and, and electrostimulation and acupuncture and all these different modalities to try and get these muscles to fire where there just wasn't a brain to muscle connection. And then all of a sudden there is one. And then it stays around the next day. That is um, unfucking so that believable. The, that right? is unbelievable. Yeah. Like I, I would okay. When were you like, am I tripping or am I like moving my leg? Like, <laughs> well, like what I, I is happening tripping, here? But, I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this but is definitely like, happening. Like, like I think some of the like on one hand that seemed. I was really curious about other people had had that experience mm-hmm. or if neuros, if neurodocs that I was um, in contact with had heard of that, something like similar to this or knew of parallel stories or if this is like a known effect. And I think like, it's interesting. Like I, th- I think it's maybe notable for my situation that I wasn't really aware of some of these therapeutic benefits and right. didn't anticipate that. Um, and so that would maybe be an argument against this being a placebo effect. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and at the same time, maybe it's also another kind of important piece of nuance is that it wasn't like a magic cure either. It wasn't sure. like all of a sudden I had regained the physicality that I had before the spine injury. Mm-hmm. It was just that things were like suddenly five or eight percent easier than they had been the day before. I mean. Um but that was like a five or eight percent like difference that was really significant. Like yeah. uh, up until then um, I could walk with a walker, but I would drag my right foot. I couldn't pick it up and lift it off the ground. So couldn't definitely could not walk in sandals. Um, and it was just wearing through a pair of shoes, like, like every week or so, um, like every week or two weeks would just put a dragging hole it. in the same place in the yeah. top of my toe, just from like dragging foot. Mm-hmm. Like I could start to be able to walk, but even, even though I was not covering long distances, um, it was a very high high friction way to move around the world. Yeah, uh, yeah. it made things like even like a door jam um, really difficult, and mm-hmm. certainly things like curbs and um, oh, yeah, like walking upstairs. I could like just drag my toe up the, the face of one stair and match my stronger leg, and then do it again on the next stair. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden, I could lift my foot up up off the ground and, and not drag it and. Wow. To be honest, I still trip on that leg often. Like it's still, it's not like those muscles work perfectly or like right. they did before, but also there's some sort of a neurologic connection that I didn't have prior to that experience that I did have after that. I mean, one and, time too, that is, that is remarkable. Do you, did you continue to use uh, mushrooms or psychedelics after to help with connectivity? I have. Yeah. It seems like, you know, there's some for spinal cord injuries in particular, it's, um, very common for people to have a lot of spasms uh-huh. uh, where it's almost like, like this kind of involuntary 
involuntary muscle contractions. They're also often kind of rhythmic, but sometimes they're just like one long clench and hold, kind of like a Charlie mm, horse. Mm. Um, and so they're pretty, can be disconcerting and really uncomfortable and be, uh, there's even instances in spinal cord injuries of people, or at least reports of people having elevated body temperature, maybe almost getting a fever because their muscles are having these really intense involuntary contractions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's like, I guess there's some um, reason to be cautious, maybe smaller doses might work better for physical therapy, mm-hmm. uh, where if you imagine, you know, look at some of the research protocol for therapeutic doses for PTSD and for psychological issues, they tend to be larger doses mm-hmm. um, where people are maybe traveling a bit from their kind of physical embodied sense and mm-hmm. revisiting um, their past or seeing their lives from a zoomed out perspective. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. seems like for physical therapy that maybe a dose where it's still pretty easy to access a very embodied, very like felt somatic mm-hmm. experience of this is my body and this is what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems like maybe at lower to moderate doses there, can, you know, there's even that sense of that being enhanced. Mm-hmm. Like I can, stretch and feel the stretch extra deeply and um, appreciate it in ways that in a totally um, unaltered state, I might not even notice. Right. 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 Um, Yeah. So that's kind of been the path of my self-exploration since then has been um, at least for physical therapy use has been like smaller doses and combining that with some sort of physical activity Mm -hmm. um, and doing that in sort of a set and setting where I feel comfortable and have some place I feel that feels familiar and um or feel like I have some aptitude for navigating that in a non-altered state yeah and then being like well what if I do this plus a smallish mushroom dose Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as you look at your path now have you thought about I don't know whether it's being a trip trip sitter or uh, like a psychedelic coach or something where you're working with other people, maybe with physical disabilities and this work, I mean, how, how much, how, how much has the psychedelic piece really moved you? You know, is that an area that you would want to help uh, shepherd in or, you know, uh, or are you working with others with disabilities period outside of the psychedelics? Yes to both. Yeah. I do work with um, individuals with disabilities outside of psychedelics and also would love to find more ways to um, lower the barriers to entry um, for people who wish to explore this and who have disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now there's, there, yeah, there's some really significant, significant hardships with somebody for somebody in a wheelchair, like imagine participating in something like an ayahuasca ceremony that like often takes place in a year or a ceremonial space that is not, ADA accessible. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's really very little wheelchair accessibility. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard to find a place where there's not a lot of stairs and uh, where there's a shower that you can roll a wheelchair mm-hmm. into. Um, those bathrooms that are accessible, like that's that's turns out to be quite a difficult thing to find having accessible bathrooms and accessible ceremony space in a place that's also open to hosting something like psychedelic work. It would be amazing um, for you to recreate. Those two is pretty small. Yeah, it would be amazing yeah. if you could create so, like a retreat mm-hmm. for people with disabilities. It's like literally created. And so people wouldn't even be, like you were saying, the the part about um, feeling, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, self-conscious around themselves mm-hmm. and, and, and not wanting to feel like they need more help from it. But it's just mm-hmm. literally the whole experience is all built around that. I think people would fly in literally everywhere to do an experience I, like that. I have a, yeah, I would, had a, that, that is something I'm working, working to bring uh, to good. fruition, but, I'm but it's a, yeah, it's a slow process here. Like, it is. We've got, it is. Um, and we've got to figure out where and yeah. how, and I, yeah, I hope like you do. All the, here in Colorado, the, um, the legal half of the Natural Medicines Health Act, uh, I believe starts to kick in 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 early in 2024 Mm -hmm. um so right now there's not therapeutic centers um but soon there will be like it's there's that there's a lot that bill didn't quite define and Mm -hmm. and what the qualifications for a therapist or what qualifications for um 
licensure for a facility or for individuals, practitioners might look like. Yeah. And so right now there's a committee um, and a state office that are in charge of, of delineating all that, but there's mm-hmm. a, a lot to be figured out. And that yeah. feels like um, there's a, we'll see how permissive that system ends up being. Sure. I know Oregon's kind of working in, through that right now with their kind of first open facilities, yeah. but uh, in Colorado is not too far behind. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. hundred percent. I'll be sure to obviously have you back on the show when you're telling me about how you've got this <laughs> amazing retreat thing. And we'll make sure that everybody mm-hmm, goes mm-hmm. that uh, wants to experience it and also is working through their own disabilities in their life. Um, so what are you up to now? What's uh, what, what is the, so you got, obviously this is like a, feels like a bigger, but more long-term vision. Cause it's not quite the time. Mm-hmm. Well, what does Jim do with his days now? Now that you're not out mm-hmm. there in Patagonia, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I still really like connecting to like the world outside mm-hmm. through moving my body. I like riding bikes. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's something I can do at a little bit higher skill level than I'm, like hiking is still really difficult. Yeah. I like bikes. I can ski a bit. I like making art. Mm-hmm. We've got some art in a hanging in a local art show right now at the oh. uh, at our little local community art center here in Carbondale. Um, currently in a in a studio space um, in a warehouse full of working artists um i coached some disabled athletes at a gymnasium very cool um yeah awesome communications work yeah uh yeah so i stay busy but like my life's a little quieter and more demure than it um than it has been in the past yeah but i love that you're getting you're getting continues to be good mountain biking i mean from going from someone who (laughs) was maybe not walking to mountain biking like Damn, that is right. that yeah. is like that's cool I, that I you're you. you're you're pushing yourself yeah. and still uh pushing yourself to the point whatever your edge is, and then also knowing when you're like a little past my edge. <laughs> now just mm-hmm. uncomfortable and and finding that I'm sure it's gonna continue to uh get stronger and stronger. I love that you're working with others. I love that you've got like some bigger visions. I love that you're working with uh your arts. That is so cool. So you're 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 keeping up that creative side of your work. So um, what a hopeful story. Thank you so much for coming on. I hope people feel inspired. Sorry for everybody. I know we were cutting out there a little bit, but yeah. I'm gonna, I hope I have an amazing editor that's going to, that's going to be helping with this. And, um, the real, the gist of it was there and, uh, it's so inspiring, Jim. Thank you so much for being here and coming on the show.